you want a title, <clears throat> the title for this week's message is The Mystery of Sovereign Grace. And really, we come to two verses which I, I think are difficult. I think they are reasonably complicated to understand. So don't lose me as we start going through stuff. Otherwise, you are in a lot of trouble. I will try and be concise and help you. But we do nonetheless come to a wonderful piece of Scripture. From verse 3 through to the end of verse 14 is something known as the Baraka. It's one long celebratory sentence. If you could understand the Greek, you would find there's no commas, no full stops. Paul is just on one. He is seriously excited about Jesus Christ, what blessings we have now in Jesus Christ as Christians. And he starts to number them and talk about them. And you must understand that the Apostle Paul is not some dowry old guy sitting with a pen that's a bit bored. He is ecstatic about what he is writing here as he considers the blessing that he has and you have in the name of Jesus Christ. Well, next week we're going to look at the bracket in its entirety and we're going to enjoy the celebration that this sentence is from verse 3 to the end of verse 14. But for this week we're going to confine ourselves to two verses as we examine the mystery of sovereign grace. And those two verses read as follows. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. Let's pray. Well, Lord, you know of my private desire to serve these folk well. Lord, they're not my people. They're yours. And so, Lord, as I paid in private, I now pray in public. Lord, did you help me? Would you give me grace to exposit this text? Would we all go away, not just giving thanks, would we go away amazed at all you've done for us in sovereign grace? Lord, stagger us afresh. Would we be humbled? Would we be grateful? Would we be assured as we realize afresh it's all about you? So Lord, would you take place on this stage? Would you take center place? Would it all be about you and for your glory? Amen. In 1994, I went to the University of Cardiff in Wales, which is how I ended up going from England to Wales, to study civil engineering. It was a great year and a half before I left the course, but the year and a half did indeed go well. And civil engineering always fascinated me because I like problem solving. There's nothing better than when somebody gives you a really hard problem and you just think, oh my goodness, how on earth is this going to work? And I enjoy then trying to solve it and trying to figure out, okay, how can we move forward in this problem then? How can we build something which makes this problem go away? And how can we build something which allows things to work and so on and so forth? But one of the challenges that comes with that, with a guy like myself, is when I can't figure something out. Have you ever had that? Somebody gives you a Rubik's Cube or something of that nature and you just think, I can't do it. And it's really frustrating because you want to be able to do it, but you can't. You just can't figure out how something works. Or say, for example, secrets. Isn't it just a nightmare when you go into a room and everybody's clearly talking and they're having a good little discussion and you walk in and then there's a... 
it's always embarrassing, isn't it? And you're just, what, what, what are you talking about? What, what's the problem? And, oh, nothing, nothing. And you're like, you know they're talking about you. This is just carnage. I hate it. I just want to know what are you talking about. I hate it when people keep secrets from you. And they're, they're yakking away about it. And as soon as you enter into the room, they won't tell you what they're talking about. It is so difficult. That's the way I work. I like to figure things out. I like to know what's going on. And if you are like me, if that is one of your traits as well, then you need to understand that as we come to the doctrine of election, the doctrine of sovereign grace, there's mystery attached to it. You don't come to something in the aspect of sovereign grace that we're going to be able to fully understand. We come to something that is shrouded in mystery. We come to something that no engineer can just figure it out and explain you how it all works. We come to something filled with secrets where God says, all right, I'll tell you this, but not this. You're going to have to trust me in this. And if you're like me, that can be complicated. That can be difficult because I want to understand. And we all want to understand, don't we? We want to understand exactly the way God ticks and the way God works. And then when I understand, Lord, I'll follow you. Whereas God says no. He says in Deuteronomy 29, 29, he says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God. But the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever. There are many things in this word that indeed have been revealed to us, that we know, that we understand, that are as plain as day. But there are many things in this word that God says, you know what, that's a secret. You're just going to have to trust me. I'm not going to explain it all to you. This far and no further, son. I love you, and now you're going to have to trust me. And we see those types of things throughout the Bible, and in particular, we do see it in the doctrine, the mystery of sovereign grace. J. Rodman Williams, in his full Bible commentary, says, Because all Christian doctrine relates to God, who is ultimately beyond our comprehension, there will inevitably be some element of mystery. There will be some element of mystery that cannot be reduced to human understanding. Nevertheless, within these limits, the theological effort must be carried on. If God really is God, then we're not going to understand everything about him. That doesn't make him small. That makes him huge. Why ever do we think that we have to fully understand God in his comprehension? As we said in the exhortation in worship, he's the one that spins the galaxies. He's the one that marks off the heavens. He's the one that hold, can hold the waters of the earth in the hollow of his hand. We're not going to fully understand everything he does because he's God. John Calvin then in the and the subject of predestination, which is election, says the subject of predestination, which in itself is attended by considerable difficulty, is rendered very perplexed and hence perilous by human curiosity, which cannot be constrained from wandering into forbidden paths. Those secrets of his will, which he has seen fit to manifest, are revealed in his word, revealed insofar as he knew to be conducive to our interest and welfare. Therefore, let it be our first principle that to desire any other knowledge of predestination than that which is expounded in the word of God is no less infatuated than to walk where there is no path or to seek light in darkness. The best rule of sobriety is not in learning to follow wherever God leads, but also when he makes an end of teaching to cease from wishing to be wise. Isn't that good? There's a time and a place to realize God is huge. And he has kept some things a secret. He's shrouded some things in mystery because that's what he wants to do. And he's seen right to do that and fit to do that. And so as we come to the mystery of sovereign grace today, 
You need to understand I'm not going to answer all your questions. I'm not going to be able to reveal and fully expound it to you so that you go away thinking, I get it. I get exactly how it functions because there's mystery involved here. And yet, as Rodman Williams says, we do nonetheless carry on a theological effort. We must because there's some things about sovereign grace that can blow our minds, that cultivate humility, that cultivate assurance, that cultivate gratitude and joy. And so the things that are revealed, we enjoy and we embrace and we delight in and we allow it to change our lives. And the mystery of sovereign grace, the headline is simply this, that ultimately you are here, not because you grew up in a Christian home, not because somebody invited you to church at some point, not because somebody at the right time shared the gospel with you. You're here primarily because before the foundation of the world, God chose you. Before there was even time, he didn't just know your name, but he chose you. He put his saving grace on your life for salvation. Now, are there complicated things attached to that? Oh, you bet your life. But make no mistake, you're here because of his sovereign choice. That's what we read in Ephesians 1, verses 3 and 4. Now, it's important to understand before we carry on that as you're aware, we are called Sovereign Grace Church. And we come from a family of churches called Sovereign Grace Ministries. And I need you to understand that although that is our name, Sovereign Grace doesn't define us. The doctrine of Sovereign Grace is dear to us. It is important to us. We allow it to rejoice and fuel our hearts, but it doesn't define us. The defining doctrine of Sovereign Grace Ministries and Sovereign Grace Church is the gospel. It's the truth of Jesus Christ. It's Christ and Him crucified. And then we stand in amazement as we know the gospel, as we apply the gospel, and as we proclaim the gospel. So although our name is described by sovereign grace, it doesn't define us. The gospel is. And that changes some things. It's important to understand we don't believe that you have to believe in election to be saved. We don't believe that to be the case. In fact, a while ago, I remember hearing about a a church in South Africa that had decided to call themselves Sovereign Grace Church. And Sovereign Grace were a little surprised because they'd never heard of them. And so they they found out about this church because Sovereign Grace Ministries got written to by many South Africans that were basically saying, look, this church refuses to have anything to do with this. They say that we're not Christians because we don't believe in election. Well, we were quick to the chase of helping that Sovereign Grace Church realize they're definitely not Sovereign Grace Church and this isn't how we operate. Just because you don't believe in election doesn't mean you're not a Christian. I grew up in a church that were fully Christians and yet would look me in the face and say, God didn't choose us. It's all about me. But they loved the Lord. We would put our arm out to anybody in that nature. And likewise, we don't just give our hands in unity to folk that believe in election. That's closed. And that's small. We stand with Mr. Spurgeon, one of my historical heroes, He says, we give our hand to every man who loves the Lord Jesus Christ, be he what he may or who he may. The doctrine of election, like the great act of election itself, is is intended to divide not between Israel and Israel, but between Israel and the Egyptians. Not between saint and saint, but between saint and the children of the world. A man may evidently be chosen to be a part of God's family, and yet though elected, may not believe in the doctrine of election. I hold that there are many savingly called that do not believe in effectual calling and that there are a great many who persevere to the end who do not believe in the doctrine of final perseverance. (laughs) I love this. 
We do hope the hearts of many are a great deal better than their heads. Don't you love that? That's just typical Spurgeon. We do not set their fallacies down to any willful opposition to the truth, as it is in Jesus, but simply to an error in their judgments. And we pray that God will correct that. We hope that if they think us mistaken too, they will reciprocate the same Christian courtesy. And when we meet around the cross, which defines us, we hope that we shall ever feel that we are one in Christ Jesus. I want to be like that. I want to be magnanimous. I want to be large. So do we believe in the doctrine of sovereign grace? Oh, without doubt. Is it dear to us? Yes. But if somebody believes the gospel, then I'll link hands with any of those men and women. And would we all stand around a cross one day, delighting in the Savior, not a clear understanding of our doctrine? So we want to be like that. And so we would, as a sovereign grace church, so you know, spend time with churches who would look me in the eye and say, I don't believe in election. That's okay, as long as you believe in the same gospel that I do, then I'll stand with you. Likewise, you could be a member of this local church and not believe in sovereign grace. I think you'd find it difficult, and I think there'd be challenges attached to that. But you could be a member here, and I would allow you to be a member here, and would love you to be a member here, even if you said, you know what, I'm not sure that I believe in the doctrines of grace. That's okay. It doesn't define us. Christ and him crucified does. And so election, how do we define election? Well, let's crack on. J.O. Packer said this way. He says, the verb elect means to select or choose out. The biblical doctrine of election is that before the creation, God selected out of the human race, foreseen as fallen, those whom he would redeem, bring to faith, justify and glorify in and through Jesus Christ. This defined choice is an expression of free and sovereign grace. For it is unconstrained and unconditional, not merited by anything that is in its subjects. God owes sinners no mercy of any kind, only condemnation. So it is a wonder and a matter of endless praise that he should choose to save any of us. And doubly so when his choice involved the giving of his own son to suffer as a sin bearer for the elect. You know, the truth of election is throughout scripture. It's everywhere. John Piper, in his book, The Pleasure of God, says, if you work it out, it's on every third page where God introduces himself as one who chooses, one who elects, one who calls due to his sovereignty and his will. Throughout Jesus' teaching, we see it. Jesus himself said that those who the Lord gave to him, he will lose none. What's that? Those who the Lord gave to him. There are people who God, in his grace, gives to his son for salvation people who are chosen, people who are elect. You find in Acts 2, a whole group of people saying, you know, what do we do to get saved? Peter, tell us. And he says, all right, well, listen up, repent, be baptized and receive the Holy Spirit. And people say, oh, it's us then, isn't it? No, I'm going to keep reading. This is for you, for your children and all who are far off, for all whom the Lord will call to himself. What? So yeah, go get saved. But make no mistake, the only ones that will are those that the Lord will call to himself. That's in Acts 2. Throughout the letters then, we see about God's elect. Many of the letters are written to God's elect, God's chosen ones, God's saints, those who he's going to set apart. And so throughout the Bible, we read about election, God's sovereign choice. And if I had time, I would take you through them all, but we would need a week conference. It is there, and I hated the fact that it was there. So to give you some background on myself, I grew up in a very Pentecostal environment. 
And so we didn't specialise in reading our Bible. We specialised in singing in tongues. We just didn't read our Bibles. And so I remember the first time somebody coming to me and saying, do you realise God chose you? I wanted to punch their lights out to be fully honest. You think, that is offensive? Who do you think you are? You know, what is, what is God? Is he some type of choosing robot that just says, right, you and not you? That's just sick. I remember choosing God. I remember it well. So get out my face. It was a massive transition for me to come in any place to understand that God actually chose you. It caused great heart issues in my life for quite a long time. And I am aware that when we start to look at the fact that God chose you before the foundation of the world, for some of us, there are alarm bells that go on in our mind of, whoa, what, what do you mean? And so I want to talk about two questions this morning, two difficult questions. I, I hate it when preachers just ignore the difficult questions. You always think, that's just rubbish. Explain the difficult questions. So two difficult questions are this. Didn't I choose him? You, you say that he chose me, but I remember choosing him. Well, let me answer that. And then secondly, why me and not others? That isn't fair. Why me and not all the other people that are going past on Pendleton Hills Road? Well, let me explain that as well. I'll try my best to pull back the curtain on the mystery as best I can. So first of all, didn't I choose him? You ever thought about that? I know I did. We remember the time often when we did choose God. We remember the meeting where we came to the front and somebody prayed for us to become a Christian. We remember the time when a pastor says, okay, get on your knees and let's pray to Jesus right now that he'll come into your heart. We remember the time when we were kids putting our hand up in Sunday school and saying, I want to follow Jesus. And we remember them as if that's it, that it's just all about us. It was about our choosing. So how does this work then when it comes to God choosing us? Are you therefore saying that God, God's just in control and we have no part to play? Where does my choice even fit? Well, did you choose him? Yes, absolutely you chose him. At the right time, you put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Romans 9 itself says, Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God rose him from the dead, you will be saved. It's something that you actually do without any question at all. And if you don't do that, then you're not a Christian. Just because you go to church doesn't make you a Christian. Just because I go to McDonald's doesn't make me a burger. All right, it doesn't make any difference where you're going or where you're hanging out. Just because you grow up in a Christian home doesn't mean, you know, if your dad's a mechanic and you go to a Christian home, it doesn't mean you're a mechanic. It just means your dad's a mechanic. It, you, just because you grow up in a Christian home, just because you go to church, does not make you a Christian. What makes you a Christian is when you say, Lord, I take you as my Lord and Savior. I believe you died in my place. And I take you as my king and I want to follow you. That's what Romans tells us that we become a Christian. And so did you choose God? Yes. And were you active in that? Oh, make no mistake. But the truth of Scripture in the context of sovereign grace is that you only chose Him because He chose you first. You only willfully, by your own desire and your own choosing, chose God because He, before the foundation of the world, chose you first. And the big issue here then that we face is the issue between God's sovereignty and human responsibility, isn't it? And we like to think that they're just opposed to each other. So we either have to believe that God's sovereign, it's all about him and he's fully in control, or we believe that it's all about me and I'm choosing, but we can't think of the both together because how does that work? 
It's mystery, but it doesn't mean it's not true. The Bible teaches without doubt that both are true. The only way to salvation is by you, of your own free will, putting your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Fact. But when you do, the Bible says, you know what? The reason why you did that is because before the foundation of the world, he chose you. He came after you. And he set you apart for adoption to be blameless and holy before him. And I'm grateful to God that the emphasis of Scripture is on his sovereignty. And it is. Both are true. But make no mistake, the emphasis on Scripture is indeed God. We like to think that the center of the Bible is me, is us. But it's not. The center of the Bible is God and his glory. The center of the Bible is God and his sovereignty. The real winner of the Bible is God and not us. We fit around God, not the other way around. And I'm very grateful, just personally, as you begin to process it through, that God is ultimately sovereign and God is in control. Because I tell you why, because Ephesians 2 says that you were dead in your transgressions and sins. Tell me how you chose him if you were dead. Well, um, um, you, you can't. Go preach to a corpse and tell me if they might respond to you. They don't. Try it. If you don't believe me and if you struggle with sovereign grace, go to the local cemetery this afternoon and try it out. Jesus says, if you come to me, you will be saved. Nothing's going to happen. And that's the reality of Scripture. We were dead in our transgressions and sins. We were absolutely stone cold dead. So how did I ever choose him? Ah, Because before the foundation of the world, he chose you. And then at the right time, somebody preached to you And he made you alive together with Christ. He opened your eyes. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. I once was blind. I was dead, but now I see. How was that? (laughs) Because of his grace. Because of his sovereign grace arresting you and stopping you and effectually calling you, opening your eyes to hear the gospel. I remember back home at Christchurch chatting to this girl for ages. She came on Christianity Explored. And the very first week, she said, look, I'm here, but I'm only here because my friends are invite me to come. And I just want you to know, I am not becoming a Christian. Nice to meet you. I'm Dave. It was, it was a good like, little introduction moment as we bonded as a group. And so I began to share the gospel with her. And week one, she sat there, like, yeah, rubbish. Week two, it's the gospel again. Rubbish. Week three, gospel again. Week four, gospel again. Week five, gospel again. She is in tears. And she came to me at the end and said, I, that was amazing. I've given my life to Jesus Christ. Why didn't you tell me the gospel before? I said, love, I've been telling you for the last five weeks. But in God's amazing grace, today he opened your eyes. He deserves all the glory, all the praise, because your salvation is all of grace. Did she choose the Lord? Oh, yeah, no doubt. But why did she come to lose the Lord? Because of his sovereign grace, because he came after her. Anthony Hikuma in the book Saved by Grace, a wonderful book, says the decisive factor in determining who is to be saved from sin is not the decisions of the human beings concerned, but the sovereign grace of God, the determining factor, though human decision does play a significant role in the process. We must therefore affirm both God's sovereignty and man's responsibility, both God's sovereign grace and our active participation in the process of salvation. We can only do justice to biblical teaching if we firmly hold onto both sides of the paradox. But since God is the creator and we are his creatures, 
God must have the priority. Hence, we must maintain that the ultimately decisive factor in the process of our salvation is the sovereign grace of God. We can't take one or the other. C.H. Spurgeon said, I don't, I don't want to reconcile friends. He wanted to keep friends apart. The truth of human responsibility and the truth of God's sovereignty. Both are true. But if you have to choose an emphasis, it's on the grace of God. Why are you here? Ephesians 1 verse 4. Because he chose you in him before the foundation of the world. Charles Adam Spurgeon, in his own book, book uh, All of Grace, gives his own story of how he came to realize this and how it affected him. And the story goes as follows. When I was coming to Christ, I thought I was doing it all myself. And though I sought the Lord earnestly, I had no idea the Lord was seeking me. I do not think the young convert is at first aware of this. I can recall the very day and hour when I first received those truths, the doctrine of election, in my own soul when there was, as John Bunyan said, burned into my soul as with a hot iron. And I can recollect how I felt that I'd grown all of a sudden from a babe to a man, that I'd made progress in scriptural knowledge through having found once for all that clue to the truth of God. One weeknight, when I was sitting in the house of God, I was not thinking much about the preacher's sermon, for I did not believe it. The thought struck me, how did you come to be a Christian? And this triggers an internal conversation in Mr. Spurgeon's mind. I sought the Lord, I thought, but how did you come to seek the Lord? The truth flashed across my mind in a moment. I should have not sought him unless there had been some previous influence in my mind to make me see him. I prayed, thought I, but then I asked myself, how came I to pray? Well, I was induced to pray by reading the scriptures. How came I to read the scriptures? I did read them, but what led me to do so? Then in a moment I saw. I saw that God was at the bottom of it all and that he was the author of my faith. And so the whole doctrine of grace opened up to me and from that doctrine I have not departed to this day. And I desire to make this my constant confession. I ascribe my change wholly to God. You love that. You know, maybe you're here and you've grown up, like me, going to church. It can be a challenge then to think of a time, how do you mean God chose me? I just happened to grow up in a Christian home and you know, my parents became Christians and I thought, yeah, bingo, I'll have a slice of that. No, there's more to it than that. Maybe you came on Christianity Explored or Alpha or something like that or you just came on to search and you heard the gospel and you made a commitment upon hearing the gospel to become a Christian and to follow Jesus as your Lord and Saviour. Is that the only reason you're here? I suggest you not. You're here primarily because before the foundation of the world, he chose you. He came after you. It was his emphasis and his sovereignty which caused you to respond in the way you did. Donald Gray Barnhouse uses a wonderful illustration for it. He paints a picture of a huge cross, and in the middle of the cross is a huge archway. And on one side of the cross, it simply says, Come to me, all who are weary, come to me. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And so you stand there and you think, great, I want to become a Christian. And you walk through the cross, and then as you look back, you see the words chosen before the foundation of the world. How does it all work? I don't know. It's a mystery. and We don't fully understand it. And this is where we have to say with Calvin, you know, this is now a forbidden path. God says, this is what you need to know. 
I chose you before the foundation of the world. Okay, well, Lord, how does that work? All right, stop there. I'm not going to tell you. Do you still trust me? Do you still love me? Do you still want to follow me? Are you only going to follow me as your Lord and Savior if you're going to figure everything out? Well, I'm not telling you this. But I do know this. You're only here because God chose you before the foundation of the world. Yes, you chose him freely. But you're only able to do that because before there was time, he chose you. So then what, me, why me and not others? You know, it just seems unfair, doesn't it? What, why us? Why for us 150-odd folk in here have we been chosen? And there's people out there that aren't chosen. How, do, how does that work? I hated that. And that was the thing that caused me so much confusion. And I remember about five years ago then at Christchurch, my home church, talking to a man who was clearly a little upset about this doctrine. And we had been singing in the worship a song called Haven't You Been Good? It's a Sovereign Grace song. And there's a line in it that just says, Out of millions lost, thank you, Lord, for saving me. And he came up to me and said, That is the worst line I have ever read in my life. That's sick. Thank you, Lord, for saving me out of millions lost. What about the other 999,999? And are we giving thanks for us? That's just wrong. You know, how can we give thanks for us when God out there is choosing to reject lots of other people? There's loads of people at the doors trying to get in, but God's saying, okay, well, I'll have you, but not you. You can go away, and I'll have you, and you can go away. That's just not fair. That's wrong. I thought like that too. But there's a story that CJ once read by a man called Mark Webb, and it just so helped me understand what the reality is. It goes as follows. After giving a brief survey of these doctrines of sovereign grace, I asked for questions from the class. One lady in particular was quite troubled. She said, this is the most awful thing I've ever heard. You make it sound as if God is intentionally turning away men and women who would be saved, receiving only the elect. I answered her in this vein, you misunderstand the situation. You're visualizing that God is standing at the door of heaven and men are thronging to get in the door. And God is saying to various ones, yes, you may come, but not you. And you, but not you, and so on. The situation is hardly this. God stands at the door of heaven with his arms outstretched, inviting all to come. Yet all men, without exception, are running the opposite direction towards hell as hard as they can go. So God, in election, graciously reaches out and stops this one and that one, and this one over here and that one over there, and effectually draws them to him by changing their hearts, making them willing to come. Election keeps no one out of heaven who would otherwise have been there, but keeps a whole multitude of sinners out of hell who otherwise would have been there. Were it not for election, heaven would be an empty place and hell would be bursting at the seams. That kind of response, grounded as I believe that it is in scriptural truth, does put a different complexion on things, doesn't it? It does, doesn't it? I used to think wrongly that God is sort of standing at the door and saying, okay, well, I'll have you, but not you, and I'll have you, but not you. But that's hardly the truth. The Bible says no one searches after God. We're dead in our transgressions and sins. We're an enemy of God by our own free will. We're not trying to get into heaven. We're trying to slag heaven off, and we're trying to run towards hell as we've exchanged, as according to Romans, the creator for the created. We've exchanged God. We've said, God, get stuffed. We don't want you. We're living for myself. You know, give me a break. We're not trying to clamber into heaven. We're running away from him. 
And yet God, in his grace, comes after you. And he came after Callum. He came after Patrick. He came after Wilsey. And he said, you, stop. God doesn't keep anyone out of heaven that otherwise would have been there. But he keeps hell from bursting at the seams by before the foundation of the world, choosing you. Choosing you particularly. Why you and not others? I don't know. The Bible doesn't say. You know, as a pastor, I have one of the only jobs where I can look people in the eye and say, it's a mystery. I don't know. If you went to your mechanic and he said, you know, mechanic, the, the wheel's not working. Oh, it's a mystery. You'd sack him. But, <laughs> you know, you go to the doctor and you say, doctor, my leg's hurt. And he says, oh, fancy that. It's a mystery. It, you would never go again. But as a pastor, I can look in the eye and say, it's a mystery. I, I, I don't know. The Bible doesn't make it clear why. But what it does make clear is that he chose you. Not because of anything he saw in you. Not because he looked down through time and said, oh, you'd probably choose me, so I'll choose you. No, you're an enemy of God. And yet in grace, he not only knitted you together in your mother's womb, he said, I'll have you. I'll choose you, Mike. And I'll choose you, Patrick. And at the right time, when somebody shares the gospel with you, I will open your eyes and your chains will fall off and you will rise and you will go forth and you will follow thee. And you will probably say, you did it all yourself. But then I will remind you through Ephesians 1, 4, no, you only did that because of me. Because I chose you before the foundation of the world. You know, when this doctrine gets you and affects you and grabs your heart, I believe it has a huge effect on your life. And I think those effects are threefold that I just want to talk through briefly as we close. Because I think God wants to allow these truths to affect our lives. You know, sovereign grace, we don't want doctrine to just be some cerebral exercise. I don't care about cerebral exercises. I don't just want a group of people, and I don't want to model it myself, where it's just like, do you believe in election? Oh, yes, I certainly do. Ah! If you believe in this, it changes your life. I don't just want to believe in it. I want it to grip me. I want it to affect me. I want it to fuel my worship. I want it to fuel the way I am as a husband. I want it to affect the way I father people. I want it to affect the way I am as a pastor. I don't just want to tick a box to it. I want it to grip me. And when it does, I think it has three effects. Number one, humility before God. When you really believe that you're primarily here because God chose you before the foundation of the world, that should make you profoundly humble. Mark Webb says, God intentionally designed salvation so that no man might boast of it. He didn't merely arrange it so that boasting would be discouraged or kept to a minimum. He planned it so that boasting would be absolutely excluded and election does precisely that. You know, Christians should be the humblest people you've ever met in your life. We shouldn't be coming in on a Sunday morning thinking, well, I hope people notice me this morning. And no. We shouldn't be discussing what role can I have in the church. That misses the point. Christians should be the ones that are coming in on a Sunday and saying, Lord, they should be shaking their heads in disbelief. How, how did I get here? How, how am I here? How am I not the one sitting in the park down the road unaware of what God's done for me? How did I get here? It isn't primarily about what we do for Jesus. It's primarily about what God has done for us. When that grips us, I believe that should make us incredibly humble. 
And that's why, for me, just one of the reasons, I don't just want us to hold to relation. I want us to revel in it. Because when you meet somebody that's proud, more often than not, they are unamazed by grace. They think they've done it themselves. And minimally, even if they do believe in election, they think God's made a good call because you are pretty good. No, you are an enemy of God. And while you're his enemy, even though he knew that even your best deeds would be filthy rags before him, he chose you. That should fuel our hearts. Mr. Spurgeon says, I believe in the doctrine of election because I'm quite certain that if God had not chosen me, this is my story, I should have never chosen him. And I'm sure that he chose me before I was born or else he would have never chosen me after. And he must have elected me for reasons unknown to me, for I never could find any reason in myself why he should look upon me with such special love. This is our story. It's your story. Friends, it's all of grace. And when you allow this to function in your life, it changes your life. Because you realize it's not about me. It's all about him. I was an 18-year-old loser. I was not only rejecting God, I was happily rejecting God. I didn't want God. I was fine. And I got engaged to a girl. I'd known her six weeks. I decided that was more than long enough. She was pretty. And then we got engaged, and then after being engaged for three months, she, six weeks before we were due to get married, decided she didn't want to get married anymore. I had left university, my degree. I had bought a house. I was earning £7,000 a year. I just got a poxy job so I could marry her. All my family get their attire. They get their suits and ties. My mum gets a dress. They get their hats. And then I have to ring him and say, you know what, um, she doesn't want to marry me, and I'm sorry for not taking any counsel, not listening. In that season of my life, God arrested my soul. I was not looking for him. But he came looking for me. I don't know why. But in grace, he came looking for me. That's all of our stories. It should provoke humility in our lives. It should also promote assurance from God. Very dear and close assurance. You see, if we were the ones that started and authored our faith, then admittedly we could be the ones to lose it. If the first page of our book said, yes, I invited Jesus Christ into my life, then one would assume that the last page could say, I've rejected Jesus, thanks for playing, but no thanks. But the truth of Scripture is that the first page of your book doesn't say you chose God. The first page of your book, so for Janelle, it says, Janelle, page one, Janelle chosen before the foundation of the world. That should stoke assurance. If we authored it ourselves, we could lose it. But if God in his sovereignty authored it, that changes everything. God did author it. He chose you before the foundation of the world. None that the Father has given to Jesus, he will lose. He will hold you. He will grasp you. He will lose absolutely none of you because it's not about how hard you hold him. It's about that he chose you before the foundation of the world. 
and his grip of grace will never let you go. This should bring great assurance. Romans 8 says it this way. Paul says, And those whom he predestined, he also called. And then he continues. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. You think you can lose your salvation? You must be joking. Carry on reading Romans 8. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No! In all of these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, not angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. He chose you before the foundation of the world. He is the author of your salvation. That should bring great assurance. And with that assurance, number three, should come gratitude towards God. So humility before God, assurance from God, and finally gratitude towards God. Oh, guys, if Christians aren't happy, then we've got a problem. I mean, goodness gracious me, if you really believe this, we should be ecstatic about what Jesus Christ has done for us. And if that then doesn't explode in praise, we've got to, it's just weird because everything else in life does. You eat a good meal, and what do you say? You say, hmm, that's really tasty. What is that? It's an expression of praise because it brings you joy. You don't, you don't have to teach people at the AFL, listen, if there's any chance, when they score a goal, if you could erupt in praise, you don't have to do that. It just comes automatically. You just go, God, yes, because it's the automatic reaction of this brought me joy. And so therefore, Lord, you can have it. If Christians are not exploding in gratitude and joy when it comes to the context of singing praises, then I have real questions over what's going on. Because that is so dissimilar to everything else that happens in life. Everything else in life, the things that bring us joy, we explode in praise. C.S. Lewis says it best. The same should be true for Christianity. If you believe that you are dead in your transgressions and sins, that you are spitting on God, that you are hating God, and yet before the foundation of the world, He chose you. He then at the right time sent Jesus Christ, His only begotten Son, to die on a cross for you. The Father turned His face away from Him so that He could turn His face to you and then accept you and forgive you and adopt you and assure you of heaven. If that doesn't warm your cockles, something's wrong. It should affect your life. It should affect us with great gratitude and joy. J.I. Packer said it this way. He says, to know that from eternity, this is your story, but from eternity my maker, for seeing my sin, for loved me and resolved to save me, though it would be at the cost of Calvary. To know that the divine son was appointed from eternity to be my savior and that in love he became man for me and died for me and now lives to intercede for me, and will one day come in person to take me home, to know that the Lord who loved me and gave himself up for me, and who came and preached peace to me through his messengers, has by his Spirit raised me from spiritual death to life-giving union and communion with himself, 
and has promised, promised to hold me fast and never let me go, this is knowledge that brings overwhelming gratitude and joy. My friends, it should be the same for us. I don't want us just to hold to election. Oh, yes, well, we're a reformed church. We hold to election. Tick. What? I want us to revel in it. I want us to be amazed that before the foundation of the world, he chose you. He chose me. Yeah, there's mystery attached to that. There's things that are hard to understand. There are things that we, we get to the end of ourselves and we just have to say, you know what, like David, Lord, such things are too lofty for me to attain. But I trust you. I believe you. But the secret things we have to leave, but the things that are revealed... We allow them to fuel our lives. He chose you. And so if we allow that to run around our minds and run into our hearts, I pray, folks, that for myself and for you, would humility and assurance and joy really be our themes. Let's pray together. Lord, it is so humbling when we gather around your word afresh to realize that the center of this book is not us. It's definitely you. Lord, Lord, thank you for choosing me. Thank you that out of millions lost, you put your saving grace on my life. And Lord, thank you for all those here that are Christians that know you as Lord and Savior. To think that you were thinking of us before even the world's foundations were in blows our minds. Lord, where there is mystery involved in this and where we find our hearts troubled, would we, would we have the grace to understand that is a forbidden path now? We're not meant to understand, for you have shrouded it in mystery. But where stuff has been revealed, would it affect our lives? Would we revel in the truth that grace, all of grace, is the story of our salvations? All we bring is our sin and the nails in our pockets that nail your hands. But what you bring is death to life. What you bring is redemption and salvation. What you bring is effectual calling. What you bring is the shout of our names. Lord, it's all you. And so as we close in song, would all glory go to you, Lord. Amen.